0: Good morning, praise the Lord, it's good to be with you this morning, if we could turn in our Bibles to the book of Titus, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, alongside the book of Genesis, we have begun a short, uh, sort of a mini-series. In the book of Titus. In the can y'all see that? In the first two parts of our study, we've covered the introductory matters of the book, such as who wrote the book, who was the book written to. We answered the question of when the book was written. Uh, things like the purpose of the book, which was the task of Titus in bringing order into the churches, plural, in Crete by appointing elders in those churches, Titus 1.5, and also to place uh, doctrinal instructions for those elders and the church in general for the promotion of good works, and in addition to warn believers of false doctrines. We asked, what's in the book and we provided an outline to answer that question we also asked what is the overall message of this letter and we learned it was to promote healthy and godly character godly works and growth in the church through sound doctrine and leadership these questions prove uh, to be very helpful whenever you study a book of the Bible, to first get the the lay of the land, so to speak, a foundation for greater understanding of the book and its contents. We learned that Paul calls himself a slave of Christ so that he may win over more to Christ. We also discovered what drove Paul's ministry, and it was the gospel, the gospel message, which we just sang about. Equally important, the reason why Paul did what he did was for the sake of those who were of the faith, the chosen of God, Titus 1.1. For the word of God that leads to godly living, if you remember, safely tucked in the hope of eternal life, and that is what God promised, and that is what will be fulfilled in all its detail because God is a God who cannot lie amen we see God then entrust this gospel message to Paul and now Paul is entrusting this same message to Titus and on to the elders of the churches as a reminder Titus was one of those Christians if you ever had to pick a team he would be the first one picked out of the bunch he was someone who was, who was very reliable, someone who was faithful, that could be counted on. Uh, Titus was that individual who changed the atmosphere of a room uh, from gloom to joy. 2 uh, Corinthians 7.6 says, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Verse 13, same chapter, says, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced, even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So today I'd like to continue in our outline uh, where we left off. I've entitled this message, The Task of, of Titus, because we will be moving in uh, the assignee, verse four, and the assignment, verse five, uh, sections of our of our outline. But today, I, I'd like to take a sort of a big picture approach before getting into the details. Uh, my goal for taking this sort of a bird's eye view of Titus is to is to slow down. And see what God has revealed to us, his church, regarding church leadership. And to settle us back into context, I'd like to take this from the top. Can we start in Titus 1, verse 1? It says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness, or which leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach Reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, verse 8, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those Contradict. Verse 10 For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Let's pray. Father, bless the teaching of your word that it may go out and equip your people. Use me as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's quite clear from Scripture that the church belongs to Christ. Amen? Christ is the founder of the church. Matthew 16, 18 teaches that Christ is the sole builder of his church. In fact, Christ went through incredible lengths to redeem the church, right? He left for a moment his place in glory in heaven, stepped into time and into our world to be born a baby, took on humanity, and lived a sinless life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, that's God the Father, made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The righteousness of God there, that's the church. And then towards the end of his ministry, Christ was beaten. He was tortured. He was hung on a cross. He was crucified, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. He accomplished all this for the sake of the world, particularly those who would exercise their faith and put trust in him alone. These people are known as the church. And the Bible reveals that Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25, so that he may sanctify her and cleanse her. In fact, the Bible says he purchased the church with his very own blood, Acts 20.28. Moreover, because of this transaction, the Bible makes clear that we are no longer our own. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that. This is slave language. Uh, we talked about that in, in our prior lesson. So presently, now that the, uh, the earthly work of Christ is done, we find ourselves, ourselves in an age, right? The church age, where Christ is now gathering for himself, a people that he has redeemed, taking them out of this world, out of this system, and building his church, using them to carry out uh, his his will, his gospel message, his love, his instructions to the to the to the four corners of the earth. And what I find fascinating about God's plan with his church is that. God has revealed in his word how, ex- how exactly he wants Christ's church to be run. Amen? Christ's body, the church. It has a structure. It has a certain organization. God has detailed in his word what that should look like. And uh, a design, if I could use it that way, uh, to function according to what he has revealed in scripture. And if this is done, then the church is naturally effective in her ministry. There's a blueprint to all of this. On the other hand, if what is revealed in scripture concerning the church is not adhered to or followed, then naturally we can expect the the design or the function of the church to break down, right? To fail or to be ineffective. For example, Paul alludes to this uh, this design in 1 Timothy 3.14. He said, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Not, but in case I am delayed, uh, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Notice here, that in order to be the church of God, the pillar of truth, Paul hints of a certain structure and how overseers in it ought to conduct themselves. He was speaking to the leaders, by the way. And incidentally, the pastoral uh, epistles of Paul, which we find ourselves in, particularly this book, Titus, are the main books in which we find the church's instructions. And directives. So the church belongs to Christ. She is built by Christ. In fact, Christ in his word has revealed his will for the church. Christ also provides for the church. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Many of you attended our our uh, congregational meeting uh, last was it last Sunday, a few Sundays ago, uh, and learned firsthand how God provides for His church. Amen. If you have not yet attended our our congregational meetings, I encourage you to do so, you will see living proof how God provides for his people. Our God is a faithful God. So the church belongs to Christ. Uh, Christ builds the church. Her needs are met as far as spiritual, material, and financial, he provides but just as important, God also provides for his church by way of leadership through church elders. You will notice in the Bible that there is a leadership, leadership structure to his church, starting with Jesus Christ, amen? He is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief Shepherd, And I, I believe it's important for us to understand that, that in God's great wisdom and his love and his care for his church, the design for his church, that Christ has chosen to delegate his own shepherding love and care through faithful men, through gifted men. In fact, the leaders of the church are gifts themselves from God. These are not my words. According to Ephesians 4.11, Paul talks about how Christ gives various gifts, or, or excuse me, various leaders to the church. He gives them. He gifts them to the church Notice men who have varying gifts themselves. Why does God do this? He gives them for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's co- it, it, according to these, it's clear that Christ providentially and sovereignly works as he gives these men to the church as a way of the leadership. So wouldn't that mean, if I'm reading this correctly, that he would have to prepare them as well, right? Where he sovereignly draws men and calls men to serve in the, in the leadership of his church. He, he also prepares them. From the time they put their faith in his son and appointing them as leaders. I would, I would venture to say uh, uh, God has his eyes on these leaders even before birth. That is what he does for his church. Didn't he do that with Paul? Didn't God set Paul apart from his mother's womb? Galatians uh, one fifteen says that. Didn't we learn in prior lessons that Christ converted Paul himself? He spent, Paul spent three years in Arabia, just him and God. Scripture says God trained him, Paul, for the work of the ministries, Galatians 1.17. Galatians why, why, why am I saying this? Because there's a leadership pattern here being formed. We see that God is sovereignly repeating this process here in Titus where God trains, then calls, then sends, then leaders train and appoint, and then they send, and then the process repeats. This is the pattern of God. With that in mind, look at verse 4 of Titus 1. Look at verse 4. Chapter one of Titus, verse four. It says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Notice what Paul called Titus, my true child in a common faith. We've already went into some detail regarding Titus and his background. However, this letter from Paul is to a believer. He called him my true son in a common faith. Their faith in Christ was something shared. In fact, Titus had a track record of faithful service as Paul's missionary assistant. Notice what Paul also said. Look at Titus 1-4 again. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This was a typical greeting of Paul, grace and peace. I love the way uh, the Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines grace. Very fitting for this lesson. It says, The gift of God, grace is, the gift of God, of God, as expressed in his actions of extending mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to people. It goes on to say that grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God, and if you would allow me to be so bold, insert, and men, the, deme- the dimension of divine activity that enables God and men to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. Paul declared grace and peace to Titus, likely due to Titus' task at hand. Notice this. Is it just me or is Paul speaking for God in this text? Grace and peace from God and Christ. Think about this. Paul is a representative of Christ himself, called and trained by Christ himself, and given authority by Christ himself, now speaking for God. Grace and peace from God the Father. And Christ Jesus. Why grace and peace? Because Titus, you're gonna need grace and peace where you're going. <laughs> um, remember remember what it said, the dimension, excuse me, the dimension of divine activity that enables you, Titus, if I could add that, to confront human indifference and rebellion with an exhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. And so, Titus, you're going to need this grace. You're going to need this peace from God because of the task being given to you. And what was this task? Look at verse 5. Paul goes on, For this reason I left you in Crete. What reason, Paul? That you would set in order. What remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you? Do you see the transfer of authority here? I, Paul, direct you, Titus, to set in order. The Greek word there is thu." It literally means to set right, to make straight what is crooked. Titus proved himself faithful and reliable. Now Paul entrusts Titus to straighten out. Uh, not one, but multiple churches. Did you notice that? Appoint elders, plural, In every city, plural, as I directed you. Those are clear and very strong words. I direct you. We don't know how much cities there were, but I found this little tidbit in a commentary that was very interesting, and I think it helped shed some light on the historical light of Titus and his situation. It says, compared with Timothy's Titus, Timothy is another pastoral letter. Compared with Timothy's task, Titus may have been a bit easier. Titus's task may have been a bit easier. Crete was no Ephesus, though it was known for its many cities ever since Homer. And while Timothy found himself in a situation where there were already elders, some of whom at least seem to have been in need of rebuke, first Timothy five, Titus, on the other hand, is charged with the fresh appointment of elders in every town. And then in parentheses, he adds, Paul and Titus may have planted the churches after all, Paul's first Roman imprisonment, with no time to establish leadership at the time. That was the commentator's insertion. This is indicated by Paul's statement, set in order what remains. So Titus didn't have it as tough as Timothy. However, he still dealt with uh, some challenging people, right? We read Cretans, about the Cretans. We'll get there. So, the, so with all that has been said, uh, there's something as a church we need to understand and get, and, and get settled in our thinking, and it's this. The men that God sovereignly chooses, the gifted men and leaders that are providentially called are appointed, and appointed as elders are Holy Spirit appointments. They're Holy Spirit-appointed men, appointed by the Holy Spirit himself. We must understand this. Um, it is God who providentially oversees this leadership process. Because it was God the Son who promised, right? That He will build His church. Holy Spirit appointed men. Hold your place in, in uh, Titus one verse five for a second and turn left with me to Acts 20. Acts twenty twenty-eight. Whoops. Acts twenty twenty-eight. If you are a firm believer in uh, that God sovereignly superintended the writing of His Word, then you would have no problem with God overseeing the appointment of the leaders in His own church. Paul, here in Acts 20, verse 28, is speaking to elders of the church. He said, Be on guard for yourselves, speaking to elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice the task, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. How does the Holy Spirit do this? How does God appoint men as overseers to be elders in the church? Believe it or not, he does this by very practical means. It's a very practical process where God, through providential means, works through the actions and the decisions of mere men. As they obey the Holy Spirit, as they identify and choose leaders in the church, through, through observation, through, through prayer, through uh, the election process, through confirmation. Turn, turn over to uh, Acts 6 for a moment. Acts 6. When, when was the church born? Acts 2, right? And over in Acts 6, verse 1, we see sort of a prototype leadership council taking place. A very primitive form of leadership, leadership selection. Apparently there was a need uh, for leaders in the church. Those uh, selected, we're not given uh, formal titles at this time of, of elders or deacons. In fact, the very first formal use of, of elders in the book of Acts uh, in the context of church leadership is in Acts 11. So you could probably argue that these were deacons. However, it's clear that there was a leadership delegation process being launched by the apostles here. And and God's sovereignly working uh, this thing out, this leadership thing out, where the where the transfer of leadership is taking place. Notice Acts six one. It says, "Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. A complaint. We don't get that right." A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who may put in charge who we may put in charge of this task. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse five. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man of full faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Pro- Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these men... They brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Did you notice the structure there? And the very practical process there, here in these verses? And the purpose of this whole process? There were disciples who gave priority to God's word, right, in this text. There was a selection and delegation and leaders to go to to be sent and resolve those issues at hand did you also notice that the congregation took part in the selection in this process verse 5 the statement found approval with the whole congregation let's be clear the congregation did not initiate this delegation it was the disciples the congregation took part in it and they agreed with the selection. And then notice how the selection was confirmed. It was by the original apostles as they prayed for them. So at the very inception of the church in Acts 2, over in Acts 6, we already see Christ moving in his church, using men to order and structure and delegate and and build His church with leaders. How do we? How do we at Sobc choose leaders, choose elders in this church? The same way. The elders and the uh, members of the congregation. All we ask for you, uh, in order to take uh, take part in this process, is that you be a member. Uh, We all take part in choosing leadership. Uh, come to our congregational meeting, and and you will see firsthand how that takes place. It's very practical. Leaders in the church and every church member, uh, we observe people come and go in this church. Eventually, there will be a person who uh, that might attend that that may possess certain gifts, giftings. Uh, you know, willing to volunteer for certain ministries, serve in certain capacities. Perhaps we see one with potential leadership, uh, leadership potential. And in that case, if we do see that, we, we watch some more. Uh, because at the end of the day, you could be the most gifted person in the room. The most successful person in the room. But if... Uh, Consistency and faithfulness is not part of the equation, it would be safe to say that that person is not ready for, uh, to lead God's people in his church. What will Jesus say upon the evaluation of one's life as told to us by the, by the parables of the talents? Will it be, Well done, thy good and talented servant, No. Well done, thy good and uh, successful servant. Sorry. Christ will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Watch this now. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in the joy of your master. Again, that's slave language. No, ta- uh, uh, I mean, this is, not, this is not to say talent and success are bad things, but that's not what God is looking for, and neither should the church in the selection of leaders. As a church, we nominate elders, we vote on elders, the current and acting elders choose their candidates, we interview them, and then we confirm them to the congregation one big question that's regularly uh, presented is this. Is that person already serving? Is he, uh, where is he serving? Is that path, uh, person faithfully serving? How long is, has he been a, or she been a believer? Excuse me. How long has he been a believer? Uh, uh, this is not a mystery in scripture that faithfulness, is what gets God's attention. Paul in, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2 1 through 2 says to his protege Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to the most likable men. No, that's not. Sorry, wrong version. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Why would Paul even say this? Because it was God who initiated this leadership process and transfer of leadership, starting with Paul. In fact, it was the risen Christ, right, who said to Ananias regarding Paul in Acts 9.15, Christ said this, but the Lord said to him, "That's Ananias." But the Lord said to him, "Go for or go for he that's Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel." And incredibly, Paul in his uh, later in his life confessed this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. What a leadership testimony. Amen? Here at uh, SLBC, Christ is the head of the church, period. We reject and refuse any modern or new insights that the world may offer. We are also an elder ruled or led church, as opposed to a pastor led church, or you could also call this a bishop ruled church. We are not a congregational led church or ruled church. Yes, we do see these models in the body of Christ today. However, Sugarland Bible Church. We believe that the elder ruled model is what is taught in Scripture. In Section 2 of our church constitution, notice very carefully what it says in paragraph A For the purpose of carrying out God's will in the life of this church, that's the purpose. The church as a body has the responsibility. It's a duty to recognize qualified men in the church as elders and to recognize certain elders as members of the elder board. We have an elder board. As you move down the, this paragraph, it goes on to say, the government of this church, Do you know that the church has a government? Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit is vested in the elder board whose decisions shall be final. And then it has uh, some verse references there. And if you have good eyes and and read the whole paragraph, it says the senior pastor, by virtue of his position, is a permanent elder. So you need to pray for him a lot. So um, our elders are nominated uh, by the congregation, the current elder board then prayerfully and carefully selects these candidates and so on. We interview them in a, in a smoky room and drill them with theological questions for three hours. And No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Regarding their character, we, uh, we interview their wives and their children. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Some of the men were like... <laughs> yeah, we interview. We interview these men. We select them. Confirm them by our, com- our congregation. It's a very practical process. But I hope we understand this, that even though we are fallible men, our goal in this whole leadership selection process is to carry out God's will. Written by, in our Constitution. We desire to be used by God Remain discernful, discerning. Remain submissive to what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about men, leaders leaders in the church, and approach this process with, with much prayer. The ultimate goal there is to recognize Christ's will for the church as it relates to leaders and elders. So Titus, in these verses, verse 5 and 6, is given a task. A task to go and set in order what remains in the cities of Crete. There is a transfer of authority. Titus is given authority to appoint elders, plural, to establish the leadership structures in these uh, various churches. Verse 5. Uh, what are some observations that we can uh, make or perhaps even some safe assumptions uh, from verse 5. Believe it or not, these verses are, are, are pregnant with truths in them regarding the church and its leadership. Again, still maintaining the bird's eye view, the big picture perspective. What are some observations we can make? One, if we are to believe that the New Testament gives us everything we need for life and godliness... Second Peter 1, three. Then this would include the provision of leadership, right? And if that's the case, uh, as we look at the ministry of elder eldership itself, I see that it's not so specific that it doesn't allow for flexibility for an individual church and its context. Do you see that? For example, try if you will, you will not find a specific number of elders a church should have. Do you see a number there in verse 5? Is it 5 elders, 10 elders, 15? We, we, we just don't see that. But we can agree from the text that there is, there, there, there is a plurality of elders. This leads me to believe that the number of elders... Would, would depend on the, the context of the church, how big it is, how small it is, perhaps even the circumstances of the church, whether men are up to the challenge or not, and so forth. Another observation is that the New Testament does not specifically say how the work of the elders are to be assigned. I mean, We don't see Paul enumerating uh, specific duties to Titus. Okay, this guy will serve in men's ministry and that guy will serve in youth ministry and that guy, he can serve in the women's ministry. Uh, But we don't see that in, in the New Testament. We do see a priority on the teaching of the word, right? So how do we as, you know, S.O.B.C., how do we address these duties? I'll tell you how. It's a very practical process. Through practical means, through prayer, through principles we find in the Bible, by putting the minds and the gifts, gifted, uh, the talents of godly men and women together and working out these issues as a team, as the body of Christ. It's a very practical process. Um, I've noticed in our elder uh, meetings. there is a freedom with incoming and outgoing elders and the, the choice of taking on certain ministries and letting go certain ministries, even tag-teaming certain ministries. Given the clear directives of Paul regarding eldership, there is still flexibility when it comes to the number of elders and the duties. Look again at Titus one. Or, excuse me, Titus 1 6. What else do we observe in these elders? I see a specific gender, a specific sex, if any, man. I think this is critical because you will hear today from the world, also from some of the most aggressive activists today that sex and gender does not mean sex and gender anymore. Somehow and somewhere between the prior presidency and now, sex and gender has lost all meaning. And, and this idea is creeping into the church. I would venture to say that this is norm. This is normal in some of the churches. And let me just tell you Uh, point blank here this is not what God has revealed in his word regarding men and women we're doing a study in Genesis Genesis 1 27 says he that's God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them period there's no debate this is why I'm so thankful for Sugar Land Bible Church and Pastor Andy, who is systematically going through the book of Genesis and standing on biblical principles, God's truths, in the face of the craziness of our culture. There is a reason he made them male and female. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. I think you would agree with me that when we observe texts like this, verse 6 here, the design of God's church in terms of, of eldership are exclusively for men of the church, the male gender. To ignore this requirement is to ignore the builder and the founder of the church. This goes back to creation, guys. This is not to say that women, uh, that women do not play important roles in the church. They clearly do. Just read the New Testament. Women are precious to the Lord. They serve great uh, purpose and function in the expansion and building of the church. He also commands us husbands to cherish them and lead them in the Lord. Speaking of women, if a, for example, this is regarding leadership. If a woman feels led by God to lead the women's ministry at this church, we as an elder board, through a very practical process, would prayerfully consider that prospect. We would pray for you. We would vet you, support you, and stand behind you. Why? Why? because we find those principles in the bible new testament women teaching other women teaching young women teaching children we find that so naturally we would be agreeable to that amen on the other hand however if a woman feels led by god or woman feels led uh, to lead the men's ministry that's a different story that's when we would step on the brakes at that point Why? Because we don't find principles in the Bible that teach that. That a a woman shall lead or have authority over a man. These are not my words. 1 Timothy 2.12. The Apostle Paul's words. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What else do we see here in Titus 1, 5, and 6? Well, the fact that there are no elders yet in this church, it would be safe to assume that these churches were in every city, plural, We're still in their their infancy stages, which informs me that there should be no compromise in terms of a leadership structure and standard just because these churches are young in the faith, right? God's standards for his church should not be lowered simply because the church is immature under any circumstances. God forbid the church lower their standards and choose and, and, and move ahead of God and choose a man that is not qualified, or choose a woman for that matter. Something that also can be observed, verse six. This is not a personal standard. These are, this is not Paul's standard. It was definitely not Titus's standard. You know? Titus wasn't given authority to choose elders on what he thought was right. These were God's standards. We have to remember Paul spoke for God. He was the chosen instrument bearing God's name. These standards, these standards were be applied to be applied for all the churches. And incidentally we see that exact same standard in Second Timothy three. What is an elder? We've kept saying the word elder. How would we define elder? The Greek word Paul uses here for an elder in verse 5 is presbyteros. See the elders there? Presbyteros, where we get the word presbyterian. It can mean a man advanced in age, but in this context in context of church leadership, it means a man spiritually mature, one who can judge and decide wisely, one who has walked with God, obeyed God, gained valuable experience with God, a very spiritually seasoned man, a faithful man. Why is this important? Because 1 Timothy 3.6 says a leader or an elder should not be a new convert. Why? Because there is tremendous danger in that. Both for the leader and the congregation. You said danger. What, 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 how much danger? He says, Paul, this is Paul speaking, and not a new convert. Speaking of the overseer, the elder. The overseer should not be a new convert, listen, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Do you see the potential danger there? What was the devil's condemnation? He became prideful. When Satan was created, he realized that he held a very high position, an angelic position in the angelic realm, and that got to his head. He became prideful in the area of leadership. This is the very same thing that can happen to a new convert when put in a a leadership position. So these principles are to protect the man and the congregation. You know what else is interesting? This word new convert there in in 1 Timothy 3.16, it means newly planted, newly planted, The reason why the newly planted convert shouldn't be a leader is because his roots are not dug deep in yet. He hasn't been tested by the elements of life. He's young and vulnerable in, in the faith. The church does not deal with products here or merchandise. The church deals with souls, amen? Souls. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Those are scary words. I want us to think about this for a second. There is something that hangs in the balance. Amen? In God's will for leadership in the church, souls of people, When I was a student at the College of Biblical Studies, I used to think forward about how in the world God would use me in in a ministry capacity, having no idea uh, where he would take me. Uh, Then I became one of Pastor Andy's students, uh, uh, Professor Woods, excuse me. Uh, I would converse with fellow students and listen to them and how uh, you know, how, how they had plans for, for, for their future ministries, on becoming pastors and elders of their churches. Many of the stories I, I heard seemed very at, some, at times very glamorous to me. Um, I, I even talked to pastor or Professor Woods uh, about it once. I, I knew God was, you know, had me at the college for a reason. I didn't know I didn't know what reason. And so one night during the class break, I, I timed this just right when the when the when the fellow students went out for their snacks. I asked Professor Woods a very simple question. I said, How does one know that they are called by God to serve in the church? And at that time, you know. Professor Woods was, you know, he was becoming one of my theological heroes, and uh, I was expecting some spiritual and and glorious answer with light, you know, coming down from the from the sky. And he simply said, "Uh, you know how Pastor Andy?" Uh. He goes, "Uh, you just know," and then and then he walks off, and uh, that was my. You know, that was the extent of my burning bush moment. But, uh, you know, students would often uh, talk about how they're going to serve in the church. And I'm going to serve in that church or I'm going to serve in that mega church. And... But if you do your study of eldership in the various New Testament illustrations of, of overseers and elders, you will eventually run into... Oh, that's, uh, you see that head sticking out? That's Jonah. Uh, It's kind of blurry, but uh, you, when you study eldership, you'll eventually run into the shepherd-sheep analogy, a shepherd shepherd shepherding his flock, and of course, the church is analogized to the sheep. But as you study the life of a shepherd, you discover that it's, it's not so glamorous. In fact, it's pretty humbling. Uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes incredible patience. Uh, it's dirty. Um, I read an article to that effect. And for some shepherds, the day is usually long and arduous, laborious, Uh, sometimes sitting in the sun for hours. Uh, The sheep will start off very energetic, very joyful, but eventually sheep will begin to create clicks and challenge other sheep, bully other sheep. Uh, The article even described it as a mob. and uh, The article also said that sheep many times are greedy, They're many times forced to obey the shepherd. They wander. Uh, Sheep are obviously not bright uh, or, you know, bright animals or alert uh, 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 regarding their surroundings. So the shepherd has to defend them uh, from animals of prey, oftentimes risking their own lives for the sheep. And uh, it's not a, it's not a, not a glamorous call. And I think God designed it that way for a reason to ensure faithfulness, to invoke trust and faith in Him. It's a holy calling that demands, what did uh, Paul say? Grace and peace. That's why I like that definition, grace. I like the way Andy puts it. There are three general roles of a shepherd or an elder in the church. They are guiding, guarding, and grazing. Guiding them, of course, is the sort of giving the flock direction. Leading them in certain ways. Don't go here. Don't go there. A shepherd also guards the flock. Guards them from what? From prey, danger, false teachings, false doctrines, false teachers. For example, Paul is recorded in Acts 20 28 saying this Be on guard for all the flock. Notice the illustration to shepherd the church of God. He goes on, I know that my departure, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So elders have a responsibility to guard, guard from division. You know, remember the sheep creating cliques and whatnot. Why, why is this? Because sheep, generally are vulnerable shepherds have the responsibility to graze the flock this speaks of feeding the flock to grow spiritually the the flock needs a regular and consistent diet of God's word every word Matthew 4.4 right man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For those that are new here, um, you'll notice that from the pulpit, we usually preach verse by verse, also called expositional teaching. Uh, We may tend to teach a subject or topic or two, but to get all the word of God, we believe expositional teaching uh, is the most appropriate way to accomplish that. So having said all of that, uh, what are the specific qualifications regarding the elders, regarding eldership? What kind of men are we looking for, Paul? Yes, they do need to be believers. They, They need to prove themselves faithful and consistent. But more importantly, what caliber, what kind of caliber should these men be of? What godly characteristics should they possess? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Titus 1, verse 5 and 6. Paul said, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Here they are. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife Having children who believe, not are uh, not, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, and so the next time we are together, God willing, we will we'll, we will discuss these details of qualifications of the elders. Titus was to appoint, uh, and so I hope this ministered to your heart with this sort of a bird's eye view approach of Titus. 1, 5 through 6. Perhaps the Lord uh, has put on your heart to be a leader or to be an elder, perhaps a deacon or what, what have you. That's an that's a admirable thing to desire, the Bible says. However, to be able to qualify the very first thing you must do, Paul clearly outlined this in Titus chapter 1. He said, we must share a common faith. You must be a believer first. You have to be part of the body of Christ. How do we do that? Well, you come to the realization that Jesus is all you need in this life. If you find yourself unsure of your relationship with God, then the gospel message is what's needed. The only thing that will fix the eternal problem between you and God, the Father, is Jesus Himself. The Bible says all have sinned and fall, and fall short of the glory of God. And the problem with that is that God cannot let sin pass, He, he must judge it and punish sin. And the only way out of that judgment is through his son, Jesus took that judgment. Jesus took that, that, that punishment that was supposed to be yours and mine. It was a he, by way of the cross, the sinless offering, the scapegoat, right? He did it for you and I, the world. That's what we call the, the gospel message. By believing on that gospel message and believing alone, we are now saved. That's exciting because if you have done that or are, are doing that, you just altered your, your eternal status from death to life. That's exciting. Not only that, you, be, you have become part of the family of God, this household of God. And so if you are uh, unsure of that, we can, we have, we can definitely talk after the service Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for uh, what you've revealed in Scripture concerning your church, concerning leadership in the church, and how are we to dispense of that uh, leadership process. And I pray, Father, that this has not only um, encouraged the men of this church, that, that you would even put it on our hearts to be faithful men, and lead in this church. We give you all the glory and the praise, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Amen.